Well, today's a, a busy weekend. We're right in that graduation season. A lot of kids have already graduated, some graduating today. I think uh, Gibsonburg and, and Ross and some others. And, and it's just, then you got the open houses, there's weddings. There were two weddings yesterday and just a lot of stuff happening. And we're just, uh, just so excited that we can do life together as a church family. Thanks for being here today. In all the busyness, you're here in God's house. We appreciate that. And I got to tell you, I love uh, being with you here at Grace, and I love all of you. It's just cool that God has brought us together. I, I don't know if you, when you came in, you might have noticed some uh, freshening up of the landscaping. The, uh, the high school kids came in and, and put in the new mulch and all that, so they did that for us this week, and we appreciate them handling that for us. And we, we saw some graduates as they uh, were out here earlier this morning. And then I, I thought it might be appropriate to, to point out a couple other graduates. Maybe, maybe it's been a while. Uh, here's one here. Uh, do you recognize him? This is Jeremy Framstead on our staff. So you, you shout out the name. Man, you guys are good. He's got a beard. How do you know what's behind that beard? All right, that, that's what's behind the beard. That's Jeff and Zach, their senior year. Uh, goofy, but uh, okay, how about this one? Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. You ready? Jay, come on. That You had the hint and everything. It was just up here. Yeah, all right. Yeah, whatever. All right, you guys, I, I tell you, first service did way better than you guys. I'm just saying. Uh, you, you got some catching up to do, but... Um, we're in a series called Bloodline, and what we're doing in this series kind of got a weird name to it, but what we're doing is we're looking back through history and seeing how from the very beginning, God had a plan to redeem man. And really, this plan involved grace and justice. And when grace and justice meet, blood always flows in the Bible. And so that's what we're talking about Bloodline. We talked about the garden. We then talked about Abraham. And so we're going to pick it up now and we're going to go move forward in time to Moses. And as we look at his life, we're specifically going to look at an event called the Passover, the first Passover. And it was from that point forward that the Jewish people have uh, recognized and celebrated Passover every year since that time. So but for our purposes, we're going to answer three simple questions. What is Passover? Why Passover? And how is, that, how is Passover connected to anything that we're doing today? So we're going to answer these questions. We're going to nail them. Are you ready? Yeah. Man, you are ready. That's great. All right, well, what? First question, what is Passover? We'll set the context. Remember, from last week, God told Abraham, promised Abraham that he was going to be a great nation. But Abraham was advanced in age and still didn't have any kids. Finally, he and Sarah had a son, Isaac, and that blessing went through Isaac. Isaac had two boys, but specifically he had Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons that became uh, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 sons, Abraham was their great-grandfather. When the 12 sons were born, 
they came back into Canaan, and Jacob favored one of these sons. It was the second to the youngest, and his name was Joseph. And Jacob favored Joseph so much, and, and Joseph may have something to do with this too, but the, his brothers didn't like him. And one time, when, when they were kind of away from Jacob, they actually grabbed Joseph and they sold him to slave traders that were heading down to Egypt. So Joseph ends up down in Egypt. And after a few decades, Joseph actually, through a series of God-orchestrated events, he becomes the, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He does that because he ends up interpreting a dream for the Pharaoh that says there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so he's able to prepare for that. During the seven years of famine, when all this is coming true, the people in Canaan, not in Egypt, north of Egypt, in Canaan, they started having, they were having a famine too. And they started trying to come down to Egypt for food. And that's what Jacob and Joseph's brothers did. They came down to Egypt. They didn't know anything about Joseph, but they came down to buy grain to get food because there's a famine. Joseph recognizes his brothers and he ends up forgiving them and they sort of reconcile. But because the famine drags on, he actually makes arrangements for his entire extended family, Jacob and all of his sons, all of Joseph's brothers to move down to Egypt where Joseph arranges for them to have some pasture land so they're going to be well taken care of. And so everything starts out good that way. But eventually Joseph dies and then Jacob dies, then Joseph dies and then a Pharaoh assumes the throne because Pharaohs die too and they don't know anything about Joseph, they don't respect Joseph and they eventually enslave the Hebrew people because they need manpower and pyramids don't build themselves and so they need, they need people, they enslave the Hebrews and actually all this was predicted God had told all this to Abraham. Back before all this happened, when God was telling Abraham he would have, uh, that his descendants would be, uh, you wouldn't even, impossible to count. He said that God revealed him that they would be enslaved, his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So the enslavement begins, and but the Hebrews, they continue to kind of thrive even under these harsh conditions. So much so that they threaten to start outnumbering the Egyptians. So the Egyptians at the time, they instituted a zero male child policy. And then they started making sure that every male child that was born would be killed to kind of limit uh, the size of the Hebrew people. And that's about the time that Moses was born. When Moses' mom gave birth, he's a male, there's a problem, he's, he's supposed to be killed. So she put him in a reed basket and floated him down the Nile. The Pharaoh's daughter finds this unaccompanied basket and she takes the baby and raises him as her own. When Moses grows up and, and becomes of age, he knows his lineage and he sort of has a heart for the Hebrew people, which gets him in some trouble, and he has to flee Egypt. He goes to a place called Midian, 
north of there, kind of in a desert country. And he's there for 40 years. He gets married. Uh, he's there. And then God calls Moses. He uses a burning bush to call Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver the Hebrew people, his people, from their slavery. So all that happens. And then when God sends Moses to Egypt, he gives Moses some leverage. Moses shows up. He talks to the Pharaoh. He says, you know, let my people go. And, and of course, the Pharaoh doesn't want to do that. They're slaves. It's all his manpower. So, of course, he's reluctant. Well, God gives Moses some leverage. And, then, and what that leverage is, is God starts unleashing a series of ten plagues that are increasingly severe on the nation of Israel. And he does that through Moses. Plague number one, two, three. It gets messy. Uh, these involve like water turning to blood and gnats, the country, you know, and frogs and boils and just all kinds of stuff. Kind of nasty stuff. And it's just all bad. And then nine plagues happen. And there's this showdown. And still, Pharaoh refuses, stubbornly refuses to let the Hebrew people go. And then there's a 10th plague. And the 10th plague is, is more elaborate than the others. And, and I think there's a reason for that. And the, the 10th plague happens, and, it, and this is where we get this thing we call the Passover. There had never been Passover before, and here's where it comes from. And it's out of Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 4, Moses said, and so Moses kind of pr pronounces this tenth plague to a stubborn Pharaoh who refuses to let the Hebrew people go. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of all the cattle as well. And so that's the plague. That's what's announced to Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh hears that, and he's not moved by that, still stubborn. It's kind of interesting because the Hebrew people heard that too. And they were probably like, excuse me, Moses, excuse me. You mean the firstborn of all the Egyptians are going to die? And Moses says, well, no, firstborn in all of Egypt, no matter who. And they're, whoa, whoa, Moses, we're the slaves. We're the good guys. You know, the firstborn of us, you know, what's going on here? What do you mean? And then God makes a provision for how this doesn't strike your home, how you can be sort of covered. So Here's, here's how that kind of breaks out. Here's the provision in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called, and so he's explaining this to the Hebrew people. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood 
on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So here's the provision. He says, okay, here's what you do. They've never done this this way before. He says, every family takes a lamb, you slaughter the lamb, you drain its blood into a basin, you get some hyssops, kind of like a, a weed that was sometimes used for cleansing purposes, but just a bunch of weed, put it in the blood, put it on the top of your door frame and on the sides of your door frame. And when you do that, this night, when the destroyer comes, you'll be passed over and you will not be affected. That's where the name comes from, the Passover. And so they do this. As a matter of fact, when this happens, God tells Israel, you're to celebrate this same thing from now on. Every year you celebrate the Passover. And so they did that. But, so the night comes. The destroyer comes through. The Jewish people do what they're told. And there's wailing in Egypt. And in every household in the land, something is dead in the morning. It's either a dead lamb or it's a dead firstborn. And so this happens. And then the Pharaoh relents, and that's what springs Israel out of Egypt, and, um, and all that happens. But here's what I want you to catch from that. Uh, why Passover? You know, that's what it is. Well, why? You see, the fact that it's so elaborate, that's God trying to teach us something. I mean, God could have sprung them loose. God could have just killed all the slave owners. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways God just wipe out their army or whatever. There's a lot of ways God could have did it, but he did it this way because it's a shadow of things to come. And, and in, this, in the Passover, the original Passover, the first Passover, the only people who were spared were the people who put their faith in this sacrifice that God gave them as a provision to cover them for this night. And so they did that. But all this, it's happening, it's laying out this way, kind of elaborate way, because God is using this event to trace his bloodline, to teach us about his bloodline all through history. And all of this eventually points to the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so he's teaching us something else. He's teaching us... When grace and justice meet, it always flows blood red, is what he's telling us. That's what's happening. Because it's grace and justice that come together. And, uh, and so Jesus, in his ministry, 1,500 years later, uses the Passover meal to institute something called communion that we'll get to in a minute. And, you know, he's doing this because it's all part of this same story. And if you think about how that, that played out, if you remember, I mean, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he enters Jerusalem. It's on what we call Palm Sunday. And everybody's cheering and they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David, and everybody's excited. And they're recognizing him as the Messiah. And all's good on Sunday, but then as the week drags on and Jesus is teaching, people get offended. People aren't so happy anymore. 
And finally, it's all coming to a close and Jesus sees the crowd's kind of turning. And he realizes what's going to happen. And so he calls his disciples and he says, I want to celebrate Passover one more time before I suffer. And so he sends John and Peter uh, to go make a way. Actually, that's recorded for us in Luke 22, uh, verse 7. Then came the first day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And so they have this Passover meal. After the meal, and this is the night he's betrayed, they leave the upper room. That's all been arranged by John and Peter. They go there. They have the meal. They institute communion. We'll get back to that. They leave. They go outside the gates of the city. They cross the Kidron Valley, which is right there by the wall of Jerusalem. And they climb a little hill called the Mount of Olives. And, on, and there, Jesus prays in an olive garden called Gethsemane. And if, if you know anything about that, Jesus has this kind of gut-level, intense prayer. And he tells, it's in the middle of the night. The disciples are tired. He tells them to watch and wait. And, uh, and he's praying. And, if you're, and what he's praying is basically saying, if, Father, if there's a way, let this p- cup pass that I won't have to drink it. And what he's talking about is the suffering that he knows coming. Jesus is basically saying, is there any other way? If if there's another way to accomplish this. Actually, what Jesus is praying there is kind of the same question we hear a lot today. As we interact with people, people, and, and we explain to them what we call the gospel, what Jesus has done for us and how we can be reconciled by God, this good news. As we explain this to people... People ask kind of the same question. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why did Jesus have to die? What about all these other religions, people say? What about really good people? I mean, what, what's up with them? What about people who haven't heard? Or what, what if somebody's really sincere in their faith? We, we're asking kind of that same question, which is, is there another way for us to be made right with God? And the answer is, there is not. And the reason is, is because all these questions deal with grace. Well, couldn't God do this? And couldn't God do that? They all deal with grace, but none of the questions we ask deal with justice. For justice to be served, a price has to be paid. And that's what's always missing in the questions when we talk to people about the gospel. When they start questioning, it's, yeah, all the questions are about grace, but not about justice. In, this sen- in the sense of grace and justice, you have to understand something, and that is God does not pardon. God doesn't pardon. We, we all get what a pardon is. Uh, the Constitution gives the President of the United States... The constitutional authority to pardon people. Criminals who are in prison serving time. He can pardon them and and they go free. He can commute their sentence and they walk free and and everything's great. That, by the way, ticks a lot of people off. Especially victims of those crimes. 
And because of that, presidents always wait until the last couple of months of their presidency when sort of nothing's on the line and the election's over and they're kind of the lame duck president. And, and so they can do it. Every president does it. And then they pardon some people and there's an outcry. Why? Because pardons are an act of grace, but they are not an act of justice. Because the victims are going, where's the justice? They haven't served their time. For justice to be served, a price has to be paid. And that's why when we talk to people, they're constantly saying, well, why the cross? Why such a horrendous thing? Why blood? That's just kind of morbid. Why? You know, why Calvary? Why crucifixion? Why torture? Why death? Why, why did Jesus have to do? How could God allow that? Well, it's because when grace and justice meet, it always flows red. You see, that's the only way that God can forgive us. A price has to be paid. Some people will push back and they'll say, well, I can forgive somebody, and you know, so if I can do it, why can't God do it? If, you're, if, you've, if somebody's asking you for forgiveness, and you forgive them, and that hasn't cost you anything, you haven't absorbed anything, you haven't had to eat anything, you know, it's just kind of... Then, then that's probably something petty that they should have never asked your forgiveness for in the first place. Because when we forgive somebody, there's a debt that we are forgiving that we should feel. We should absorb that debt and there should be a price to pay. A few weeks ago, I talked about, say I had a brand new truck and somebody dented it in the parking lot. And so after church, we talk and I say, I forgive you. Well, then I absorb the debt, the cost of the dent to get it fixed. Or if I don't get it fixed, eventually when I sell the truck, it's got a dent. It's not worth as much. It's absorbing the cost. And it's the same way in relationships when things happen personally. If there's not some cost to forgive somebody, that's you absorbing a cost. It's you saying, it's okay, even though you owe me. It's okay. I'm letting you out of it. You don't owe me anymore. I've forgiven you. I'll never hold this against you. That's forgiveness. Well, for the only way for God to forgive us is for him to pay our debt. And our debt was extremely significant. Justice and grace, when they come together, always, it always flows red. I mentioned about John the Baptist seeing Jesus. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This all ties right back to Passover. That's what he's talking about. The only way that we can be saved is by faith in a sacrifice that God provides. That's the gospel. The gospel is we all need saved. The gospel... To understand the gospel, to to embrace that, it requires a rare brand of honesty. To understand the good news that God's trying to tell us, 
we have to, to have the audacity to see ourselves for who we really are. To see ourselves through the righteous lens that God provides for us. And when we do that, we find out that we are worse off than we ever thought. That we are more rebellious, more sinful than we ever realized. And we have more sin sticking to the soles of our life. More sin than we've ever even admitted to anyone. Maybe even to ourselves. That's the level of honesty you have to have in order to become a believer. And then when you get that, the good news is that even with all that filth on your soul, God still knows all about that and he still loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And he pursues you. And he makes a way. And he invites. And he encourages you to come to him. And he did that through a sacrifice. The Passover was pointing. It was the shadow of something to come. When Jesus gave his life for us. Because when grace and justice meet, blood flows. That's what he's telling us. So if that's the why of sacrifice, well, how does that impact anything we're doing today? The Passover was a picture of the gospel. As I said, the gospel in its primitive form. As a pastor of, of kind of a large church, I get to meet people all the time. It's with hundreds of people last night. And, and I get to meet people, and when I meet people who, that God has changed their lives, it pumps me up. I mean, I just get excited about it. When I meet people that are trying to follow God, putting God first, all that, it just, it, it makes me excited. I just, I love that. But when I meet people who say they're believers, but they don't seem to have any desire to do life God's way. You know, they'll kind of give lip service to that. But they'll be making major life decisions. And you could tell it's without God being part of that. You know, it, it could be, you know, I'll talk to single people who just live this lifestyle that involves them, you know, interacting with other singles in inappropriate ways, having physical relationships and all this stuff. And it's like with no thought of what God wants, no thought of what God wants for their purity. It's just, and it's like it's not even on their radar, to adjust their life because of what God says. Or it's not just single people, married people. It comes a lot of, it's a lot of just relationships where you have two people and they'll just decide to split. They'll get a divorce. Even though they both know God would tell them not to do that, depending on the circumstance. But even when, when it's clear God would say don't do it, they, they do it. They have no biblical grounds and they do it anyway. And, and, 
And when you live a life like that, it it makes me worry for them. That that they say they're a believer, but but I'm thinking, boy, I, I wouldn't have any confidence in that. I hope. Don't get me wrong. Believers can commit any sin. I'm not going there. But when believers do things that are wrong, God convicts them and they're broken and they turn to God repentant and they say, God, I'm sorry, help me not do that anymore. And when that's missing, when people are just living a lifestyle, regardless of what God wants in their lives, we, we don't really have a picture of that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Here's what Peter says. Peter says in 1 Peter, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours and your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address the... If you dress as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. See, that's what he's telling us. Wow. If you've received, if you realize what Christ has done to be able to forgive you of your sin, it will rock your world. And you will want to follow him. You won't do that perfectly. You'll want to do it perfectly. You'll still mess up. But when you do, you'll be broken about that. And you'll want to, and and the great thing about it is when we come to God in our sin repentantly, then we feel God's pleasure and we feel that we're washed and renewed again and we can walk out of that conversation with God joyous again. We get our joy back. But if we're just in this one long march to, to please ourselves in life with no regard to God, that, that's not the picture of the Christian life. That's foreign to the New Testament, foreign to how the Bible describes believers. So what's, what's Passover have to do with us today? Well, it was during this Passover meal, celebrated 1,500 years after the first Passover involving Moses, They're doing that every year, every year until this last week of Christ. I mentioned he comes in to shouts and encouragement. By the end of the week, things are getting kind of dark. People are offended. They're not happy with him anymore. He wants this last chance to meet with his disciples. And he takes communion together. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And so I'd like our deacons to come and start passing out the elements and what, what they're passing out is just something looks like a little creamer size uh, cup of juice. And just take that and hang on to it. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. And while they're doing that, Jay's going to lead us in song.
On that Passover night in the first century, Jesus gave us one of two ordinances, two commands that we're supposed to follow as a church. Uh, Another time later, he gave us baptism, which we just saw a couple weeks ago. That once somebody comes, becomes a believer, a true follower of Christ, that they go underwater. And then the second thing is communion, the bread and the cup. He did that during the, the Passover meal. As you read, that Thursday, he told John and Peter to go prepare a place, an upper room, and they did that. And he gathered with his disciples. He said, I want to do this. He had a desire to meet with his disciples one more time, celebrate Passover like no doubt they had done before. Some things that we need to know uh, about communion, uh, that we need to prepare for communion, prepare our hearts. Uh, He didn't tell us how often to do communion. Every church has to figure that out. We're supposed to do it regularly, but we're never supposed to do it um, just as habitually or as a habit or flippantly. And we're always, it's always something special. So every church has to figure out how often to do that, that it's special, that you make it special and never becomes habitual, but you're doing it regularly. For us, that's four or five times a year. The other thing about communion, it's only for believers. It's only for people who know that uh, they're sinners before a holy and righteous God and that they have no help and no hope. There's nothing they can do to save themselves. It's all what Jesus has done for us and they've placed their faith in Jesus, meaning they believe who Jesus was and they trust in what Jesus did was a payment for their sin. So you don't have to be a member of grace to celebrate communion, but you need to be a believer. God kind of warns us about that. So Uh, If you're here and you're not sure where you stand before God, I know I ask everyone to grab one of these cups, but here's what I'm telling you. If you're not sure you're a believer, don't take communion, and and then we're going to discard the cups as we leave. There'll be some buckets that we can throw, and it's okay to throw your full one in and discard it with the empty ones. That's okay. Uh, We don't want to embarrass you or anything. Nobody will know. And uh, we hope you keep coming back and hearing more about Jesus. But for those of us who are believers, here's what happened. In Luke chapter 22, we have this this picture that Luke is telling us about of Jesus in the the upper room at this last communion. He says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church family, on top of this little cup, there's actually two lids. One's a clear cellophane lid. You can see right through it. There's a white wafer right there. If you could just peel back the cellophane. 
whatever that clear plastic thing, thing is called, and just grab the, the piece of bread. We'll take it together. And remember what this bread represents. The bread represents, Jesus said, his body. His body that, that died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done through us, through your son. And Father, we thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to put it into words, Lord, uh, that you would make such a great sacrifice for us, for me. The death of your son, the eternal God, tortured and hanging nailed to wooden beams it's it's hard to understand but God we, we, we know when grace meets justice it always flows red and God although we'll never comprehend the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us on this side of heaven, God, we, we thank you for it. It's beyond us. God, thanks for loving us at such great cost. The death of your son, in Christ's name, amen. Church, let's take the bread together. Luke continues to report to us that in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So church family, let's, let's peel this back. amazing thing about communion we celebrate Jesus's sacrificed body as shed blood which is this tremendous payment for our sin and in all that in, in the horror of all that happened happening and, and as we reflect back on that we know that also wrapped up in all that that we can have joy because this is the lamb. This is what's required for us to be forgiven and free. And God made a way for us to have a relationship forever. And in, even in this situation, he's telling us we can have joy in following him. And, and even when we mess up and we disappoint God and we fail him, we can come back in repentance and feel his joy, his pleasure on our life. Christ's blood spilt for us. Let's take the cup together. 